Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is an amazing artist who has worked for a number of gaming studios, but is probably best known for his tenure at Retro Studios. I'd like to welcome Ted Anderson. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for taking time out in a, I hope, a beautiful evening. Not rainy <laughs> yeah, and snowy, I hope. Well, rain, yes. Snow, no. Snow okay. is pretty rare in Texas, thankfully. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Mm -hmm. So uh, I suppose the first question I have for you is, uh, how did you end up at Retro? Like, how did it all start? Um, <laughs> Funny enough, um, it was a very spur of the moment email. Uh, I was working over at EA Mythic at the time out in Virginia. And I had, before that, uh, worked up in Dallas, Texas for a different studio. And I was really missing being in Texas. I went through an East Coast winter and I was just like, nope, <laughs> I'm done. And um, we were finishing up Warhammer Online and it was supposed to go and compete with World of Warcraft. And I knew how that story was going to end. So I started, you know, throwing out some resumes and stuff. And I saw that Retro was hiring. And I'd known um, someone who had worked there previously and they had enjoyed it. So... Uh, I sent him an email and my email was pretty much just my resume and um, me telling them that I missed barbecue tacos and Shinerbach beer. And they were like, Hey, all right, we would like to meet you. And, you know, soon enough, they flew me out and interviewed and got to meet one of my best friends who was going to college here in Austin at the time and just had a really wonderful time and uh, got hired, brought on. So how long in the process of Donkey Kong Country Returns were you hired? Had it already start, started development? Uh, it was in the very, very earliest stages, like um, people figuring out design and um, so on. Like I did an art test. It was kind of a very, very rough approximation of the art style that they wanted to sort of go for. And so it wasn't like they didn't even have any final art assets yet, I don't think. Um, they may have had DK already made. I, I want to say, yeah, they already had DK made, but um, it was very early. Because hmm. so. I know uh, you've said that retro helped form your art style while you were there. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you explain exactly how? Well, um, I think it was because of working so closely with uh, a bunch of really fantastic artists there, uh, you know, on the team, and they were just really great at, you know, lifting each other up and teaching each other different techniques and answering questions. And um, but beyond that, it was really pretty special to be working at Nintendo because they have such a good solid philosophy behind a lot of the artwork that they do mm. uh, for games. Um, and I took a lot of those lessons and I've taken them with me ever since. And so there was a lot to, a lot of good stuff to learn. And uh, the, you know, the, uh, the guidance um, from the uh, designers was very good at helping us in environments craft the worlds around uh, the structures that they had built. So they would gray box out a world first, and then we would build art to suit. And um, so they were, they were very good at giving us guidelines to work from. And anytime we've got good firm guidelines and a good art style established, uh, it just makes the artwork flow so easily because there's few questions you need to ask. Right. So when you say philosophy of art style, specifically about Nintendo, is there something specifically that that they do that other developers don't do or well, is rare? I think it's necessarily that other ones don't do. I think it's just that, you know, from the very get-go, they have a couple of things that are very important. And um, one of those, I mean, it's it's funny because there's so much stuff that goes on in the backgrounds of games that totally. people don't necessarily um, understand from, uh, initially, but there's a lot of language, uh, visual language that goes into a game. And so I remember specifically being told that like, if something's a spike, regardless of what it's made out of, it ends in white pointy tips. So whenever you're running through the level, 
If you see white pointy tips on something, you know immediately that's a spike. You don't want to touch it. Or, you know, if there's, um, gosh, what was it? There's a bunch of stuff like, you know, certain colors mean certain things and they always mean that. So if you encounter something that's this color and it's glowing this particular color, you know that that's going to be a health pickup or a poison item or an enemy or something like that. Um, or that, you know, even like the player path color, we tried to keep that very much the same so that you just kind of like squint your eyes. And if you could squint them, you could still kind of tell where you were going. Hmm. And uh, so like that kind of stuff where you guide the player without telling them explicitly where to go was a really neat um, dovetailing of design and art that I just, I took to heart right away, uh, especially for designing the levels on that game, but also in future games that I've worked on. Yeah. So when you were there, because obviously a lot of the artists had already migrated over from the Metroid Prime trilogy, and I understand mm -hmm. at first they were having trouble adapting to the different art style. Did you, it, had that already been resolved by the time you'd started? Uh, no, not, not really. Uh, I think that they kind of knew what they wanted to shoot for. And I think that having worked on Warhammer, which was... Let's say like on the, the scale between like very cartoony and stylized to something like a Call of Duty, which is very realistic, that Warhammer kind of felt fell neatly in between the two. Mm. We had a lot of stylized textures that still had realistic details and um, even granular details to them. So like the material that things were made out of was much more explicit, but it was still very stylized. So things were, um, you know, oversized kind of almost uh lego proportions right so if there's a big red button it's a it's a very large big red button it's not like a keyboard right so um with that i brought that to four uh working on that stuff and it just kind of ended up flowing through to the other artists who dug some of the stuff that i was making and, you know, and I vibed off of the stuff that they were doing, too. It was a very collaborative process. We would see the things that each other were making and were inspired. And it was just very, you know, the production staff on that were just very uh, cohesive. You know, we would go through each one of the, uh, the art assets that we were making and kind of make good constructive criticisms and, um, you know, point out things that we liked as well. And it was very good for honing down the look and feel of what the uh, DK rules were supposed to look like. Hmm. That's one of the things I've always appreciated about artists working in a team because you all it has to look like one artist did everything, right? It has to be this cohesive yeah. package. So what was the dynamic between like you and the and the team there? Obviously some of your colleagues like uh, what is it, Man Matt Manchester, Amanda Rotella, uh yeah. Kirit Kozlowski, is it? Eric Kozlowski, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was really good. I, I greatly enjoyed hanging out with them, and it was a very, uh, you know, close friendships that I still maintain to this day. You know, I keep in touch with Eric and um, Sean Horton. And, you know, I, back before the pandemic, I used to run into people at, like, you know, uh, you know game dev nights. Uh, like, you know, here we had, we had uh, Juegos Rancheros, which is really fun indie dev night and you know it was a nice way to meet up with folks uh who i really greatly enjoyed working out with or working with rather wow if you worked out with him as well it's that's always a good thing <laughs> pumping the lights <laughs> i used to do um uh martial arts with sean horton and oh really we, work, we would do uh what was it uh i don't think or something like that but yeah because you uh, also helped create a lot of the texture libraries for Donkey Kong, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, how, how did that go in terms of the process? Like what's actually involved in that? So that was one of the places where um, I kind of figured out a large part of my process of how I make things. And um, one of my biggest... Uh, trying to think of a good word for it but like one of the things i stand by the most is efficiency in art production i don't like to make things and make them again and again and again just so inefficient. Mm. and 
so what I got down was like the idea of having a palette that was universal so that you're not trying to figure out the color of wood all the time or what is what reads as steel or what reads as concrete or what reads as you know green plants and so I just came up with a palette that was just colors I could pluck from and immediately I would know that it would be cohesive with all the other stuff I had ever made. So if I needed to mix and match stuff in the future, it would fit. Right. How if I made how... one wooden planks, I didn't need to make them again and again. I mm. could just take them and reuse them and with minimal effort, fit them into a new scenario. So how much time does that save? It saves a lot. What, are yeah. we talking hours, it, it, days? Like, what are we talking? It depends on the project. It depends on the piece. Um, uh, but I know that it definitely, you know, it saves any kind of, like, discovery. I think every artist goes through a period when they're making something of uh, discovering what does the material look like for this piece and what reads is the way that I'm trying to make something. Um, and so if you've already got, like, a, a good, you know, bit of wood especially uh then there's no reason to make it again and again you, know, mm. you can pick how it looks how you like it and even when it comes down to like how you set up your textures if you can lock down a really good process for that you can immediately set up your your photoshop files very easy from the get-go and just know that anytime you open one of your photoshop files you know exactly where everything's going to be and you can snip things out of it if, if you need to, or if you are like, oh, you know, I'm doing a, uh, a color correction on this and I want to match it up. I know where my color, you know, my hue sat layers and stuff like that are. So I can just grab them, drop them into a new thing and bang, it'll match. So I don't have to do as much discovery. There's a lot more time to get creative, especially on the modeling side of things. Right, right. And you helped the team migrate to the Wii U hardware, right? And they were moving from obviously SD to HD. You were help helping them mentor, well, mentoring them basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because how how difficult is that jump for an artist? Would you say? Uh, I wouldn't say for like for artists, it's not that difficult. It's mostly uh, anytime you're like learning any kind of new software or even working with new hardware. I always figure that it's a matter of. Um, doing the same thing you've done before, but trying to figure out how to take what's in your head and put it down on a piece of paper or on a computer or what have you. And you just have to figure out what your process is. And so when we moved over to Wii U and we were able to use stuff like um, normal maps and specular maps and, you know, what was then like, it was current gen. Yeah. Mm. So there was really no reason why we shouldn't be using it. Um, I think that one of the snags we ran into was that there's very generational differences to creating art assets um, in games. And when it was just, uh, you know, like a diffuse layer on a model, that's much easier to iterate on than if you've got a diffuse and a normal and a spec and a glow and all these other, um, you know, bits and bobs that go into making something look current gen. you know, if you make a finalized asset and then it goes through review and there's major changes to that asset, you're not just scrubbing like a low poly model and a diffuse map that might be like a 256 or something, a pretty small diffuse map. You're scrubbing potentially weeks of work. And what we started, what we started realizing very quickly is that in order to make sure that we were making something that both design and management wanted, we needed to have concept art. And we didn't have it initially. And so a lot of the concepting was left up to us, but that's not necessarily our strong suits, right? You know, we can we can doodle something in our, our notepads and we always did. We, I've still got some of them scattered around his office somewhere. They're kind of fun to look through from time to time. But, um, but it became frustrating a little bit because when we were working with like having to do sculpts and like higher poly models of having to like basically toss out finished art assets 
in order to make major changes. Um, you know, that's that's a lot. You know, we're we're all adults here, and you know, we we're used to working on you know development, but it's still hard to chuck something if you worked on it for a couple of weeks. And so we pushed and we pushed and we pushed, and we finally did get some concept art uh, artists hired on. And that really helped smooth things out. Like, you know, just for like cohesive look, a good place to jump off from that everybody could look at and go, ah, this is what we're shooting for. Uh, that's interesting that you say that because I always thought that concept art would be a part of the art process on any game. But is that not the it case? Usually, it usually is. Um, smaller teams, well, I mean, even on like, you know, my personal projects and stuff, you know, I would contract out for people to do concepts of things because I know that illustration is not my strong point. Um, whereas like doing environment design, armor design, even certain aspects of weapon design are things I know how to do. But knowing what I wasn't necessarily, knowing what my, um, I don't even want to say like weak points, but the things that I just don't do, knowing what those are allowed me to know what my own boundaries were. And so being able to work directly with a concept artist saves a ton of time because the iteration process starts before the final products are even made rather than going through the process of making everything from scratch and then scrapping a whole bunch of stuff. Hmm. And um, so once we got to the point where we had concept art, uh, it, it, that game, especially Tropical Freeze, really just started flowing very well. Hmm. Speaking of Tropical Freeze, one of the levels that you worked on, which I think is brilliant, is uh, Grassland Grooves, the African Lion King oh, level. You. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a, very, a lot of very unique level. Very unique level. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that. There was a lot of really cool uh, like you know, concepts and ideas, especially my favorite was the, um, the kind of like almost puppets on sticks of like the giraffes and zebras. And I think there might have been like a snake, I think. Yes, um, there is. Yep. Yeah. And so those were really fun to concept out and just make this very vibrant and fun world. It was, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to make that one. Can you walk me through, like, I'm trying to think of what the brainstorming session would have been like for that level. Like, oh, we want to do a Lion King type level with all these puppet animals. Yeah. And yeah. Do you remember that? Uh um, a little bit. I think it was mostly kind of along the lines of it wanting to feel like kind of almost like festive and like there's you're, you're taking part in a world that's kind of like almost having a party around. And so that's why, you know, you've got all these like puppets that are standing up and, um, you know, then there's uh, some other elements to it that we got to play with later. Like, you know, uh, I think there was like a, uh, like a grass like a bushfire kind of thing that was one of the levels it's been a long time oh, scorch <laughs> scorch and torch i remember i yeah. know that game off yeah. by heart yeah it's a brilliant game that's why <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you like it so much um that's great yeah but you know we just we just tried to think of like you know ways to make a colorful fun world and i remember um our art director uh vince said something that always kind of stuck to me uh, stuck with me which was you wanted to make art that looked almost edible. It needed to look like, you know, almost like pieces of candy or like pieces of fondant or something. And you wanted it to be colorful and attractive and, you know, almost like you could pick it up and, you know, play with it like a, either like a little toy or a little piece of candy. And so like when it comes to a lot of the smaller props, I feel like that really shows or even with, um, you know, like the, the animal uh, puppets and stuff. I really wanted to make those look like, you know, it's a real puppet show and <clears throat> they're made out of fabric and they, they kind of flow and they move like that. And they would feel, um, feel very much like, you know, just a fun, playful environment. Hmm. Hmm. So was that idea of things being edible, is that kind of the genesis for that, that fruit? world oh that that definitely came came around when the uh the fruit level um i don't know all the names for that level right now but i worked on that one closely with uh eric kozlowski and i i want to say it was sean horton i believe matt 
Matt Manchester worked on some parts of that as well. Uh, we all touched just about everything at any time. Um, but I remember working with uh, Eric on that quite a bit. And uh, it was fun for me because when I was growing up, I remember the, uh, the orange groves in California where I grew up. And I had actually been to an, um, an orange processing plant and seen how they box these things up and remembering like the blood oranges and uh, grapefruits and all the other citrus they had around there. And that really inspired me for like a lot of the very juicy look, of a lot of things you see there. <clears throat> oh, wow. Really? That's fascinating. So what, what is the dynamic between you and Eric or during those? Because obviously, from what I understand, is he is a bit of your partner in crime. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we're still good buddies. Um, you know, he's living up in New York right now and we keep in touch. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, we want to work on some art or something like that together. And it's, it's a good time. Uh, but when he was down here, you know, we would have like Game of Thrones nights and all the folks would come and hang out together. And you know, it was it was really cool. It was a very nice to have a close group of friends who I also enjoyed working with. Because mm. Eric did a lot of the texture stuff and then you'd come along and spruce it up. Is that pretty much uh, what would, would happen? Well, we would work closely together on that kind of stuff. And um, it was there was very little, if I remember correctly, uh, of someone starting an art piece and another person finishing an art piece. <clears throat> it tended to be more that you would work in tandem. So I remember one of the things we were working on and we had to make sure we weren't stepping on each other's toes was the, uh, the Alps, the Alps, I think we were calling them because there was like a lot of owl theme and Alps theme to them and just very a lot of fall colors. And that was probably one of the first levels we really made for that, um, where we were trying to figure out the look and the feel and what we wanted to accomplish with a sequel to DKCR. <clears throat> so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he would work on parts of that and then I would work on other aspects of it. And I remember I did like, a lot of the uh, wood shingle grooves, and then he did a whole bunch of kind of almost the sort of like totemic designs in there as well. And so we would just talk back and forth about like what we wanted to achieve with the look. And um, in terms of the most challenging thing on Tropical Freeze, can you remember something that was just took you forever to do or something that was very, very hard? Um. I think like probably the hardest for me was uh, the underwater levels. Um, yeah, they're hard to do, aren't they? Water levels. And I think it's probably because I've noticed over you know the, the tenure of my career that artists tend to have specialties. And <clears throat> mine has always been uh, very mechanical, very inorganics focused. And so like, if it's something that's mechanical or like a uh, building type structure, I could take it apart in my mind real easy and figure out how it gets put back together. Uh, but if it's more of an organic structure, uh, I'm not like necessarily bad at it, <laughs> but it takes me a lot more time to figure out how does this work? How is it set up? Where to start on this and how do you build it out? And so with a lot of ocean structures, even if they are inorganic like ocean rocks, um, they tend to be very flowing shapes built by erosion and uh, you know, environmental forces. And so you know, that, that can be a little bit more difficult to work around, but you know, we got there. Because hmm. when you're doing something that's more stylized as opposed to realistic graphics, like I'd think with a realistic game, you'd be able to draw on real life aspects, right? When something's a bit more cartoony, it, it would be a bit harder to do got, or is everything get they, exaggerated more? They both have their different challenges. Um, I think like with realism, the thing you'll run into <clears throat> is that everybody knows what reality looks like because we're living in it. Um, so if you, if you screw up something like simple grass, people will notice. Um, but if you're in a stylized game, I think it's more that you want to make sure you have um, a cohesive look and feel 
that the stylization remains uh, at least similar throughout because there's like, you know, if you, if you have a game that's got big chunky shapes and over time you start doing, you know, finer and finer and smaller shapes, eventually you're going to break the style that you're working on. And so with this, we had to, you know, kind of keep it in mind, like the level of granularity we wanted in our details. But we also had to be careful with that too, because we didn't want to make things too big to where DK would seem small. So like, I remember in one of the factory levels, we had a lot of big screws initially, um, you know, holding things together. But the offset of that was that it made DK look like he was running around in like, you know, a really tiny machine, or excuse me, a really big machine, or really that he was very small and it was a normal size machine. Like it, it didn't work. So we had to go back and we had to like figure out like, how do we make this work in a way that DK still feels big? Because he needs to feel big. And you know, yeah. a little bit of back. Did you get to interact at all with Shigeru Miyamoto? Um, not to my recollect. Um, I think I may have met him in passing, but I never had to, you know, a sit down or anything like that. But um, so, what would have the dynamic been between Richo and uh, Nintendo or well, Japan? Uh, it was usually it was usually pretty good. I remember design had probably more headaches than art ever did. Um, Why is that? But, well, because uh, Nintendo has a very, in my opinion, good design philosophy behind what makes a game fun. Um, I don't think they'd be where they are without that. And <clears throat> so with that in mind, though, that they would, they would send things back if they didn't understand them or in... <laughs> Actually, I remember, um, this is actually kind of a funny uh, aside. Um, so we had something that kind of came up at the end of, um, of DKCR that threw a monkey wrench into things, no pun intended, where um, one of the people who was playing it in, on the you know, Japan side noticed that when DK would come to a sudden stop in reverse direction, there would be this little like kind of poof of dust. And he thought initially that it looked like DK was you know, blowing a big breeze across the ground, like a big gust from, and, just going, and we're like, well, he's not doing that. And they're like, but what if he did? And had us add into the game at the last minute, this blowing mechanic that would have caused like pop-ups, uh, not pop-ups, um, like, you know, just different little collectibles and little items and stuff to show up in the game. We had to go through, create these things, populate them throughout the world, and do animations that were very much at the last minute. And uh, I remember that that definitely <laughs> raised some hackles in design. I remember, I think Mike Wicken told me that story, and it was Miyamoto that suggested it. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, it was fun and it was cute. I think it was more like the, the fact that it was very much towards the tail end of production that like that made people go oh at every level huh cool but you know we got to make some fun stuff with that too so you know i, got, I remember i got to make these little like pinwheels and stuff for that and that was kind of fun and there's a bunch of other little things but you would have worked more with japan i suppose on mario kart 7 yeah yeah we worked very closely with them and that was actually a really cool project um, that was actually my probably my favorite game to work on when I was at Retro. I had a blast. Uh, I mean, just there was so much about that game that was just so much fun. Uh, Mario Kart was one of my favorites when I was a kid, and it was such a treat to be able to dig through. We had we got a delivery of all the assets from any and all Mario Kart games that have ever been made. Wow. And, so I got to dig through like all the PSDs and all the source files from games that I remember playing as a kid. And what a treat. I mean, it was so neat to see like, oh, ooh, that's how you made that. Oh, okay. Like it was neat. It was just a nice little trip down memory lane with that. But then, you know, beyond that, like their team came out, visited, delivered hardware, helped us set things up, answered questions we had. Um, and it was just, a really 
special and really cool time to be working closely with a team that, um, you know, worked on some of my favorite games. <clears throat> because everything, I suppose, would have already been set in place in terms of the design and what levels were going to be made. And then you guys would just handed it and then you worked on it. Is that, is that how it went? Well, initially, I think we were supposed to help them kind of like finish some stuff out to help them get over a finish line. And it ended up being where we uh, ended up making even more than that, where we ended up making entire levels, uh, entire tracks from scratch. And, uh, you know, it was kind of funny because I remember initially that you know, a good deal of the team was kind of not super duper excited about that, but I was stoked. <laughs> like, I was like, this is going to be awesome. And everybody else is kind of like, I guess we're going to do this. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? We're making a Mario Kart game for the 3DS. Wow. <laughs> you know, so we had these um, totally awesome. I'm, I'm still sad. We didn't get to keep them. Um, they look like, high school science projects, these early 3DS hardware development kits. It was like an exposed uh, chipset with a screen attached. And, um, you know, like, uh, I think it was like a Wiimote or something like that that was hooked up to it for use, like for playing the game. And I loved those things. They were so cool looking. It was just like this piece of like you know, lacquered plywood with chipboards attached and disembodied speakers screwed to them and man it was neat but um you know that was our first playing of like anything that had to do with the 3ds was on those uh pieces of hardware but then being given the opportunity to make entire tracks uh for that game was just really cool um you know especially knowing that so many people were going to be able to play this and that they were going to have, um, you know, just a brand new experience in 3D. It was, it was both a challenge and, you know, just very exciting to work on those, uh, those projects, uh, that project. Like, you know, I did um, Shy Guy Bazaar, Bowser's Castle, um, it was Airship Fortress, Daisy Cruiser was the other one, wasn't it? I worked on Daisy Cruiser a bit, but I think someone else had worked on it earlier. I know right. I did like, a, I can't remember if it was uh, the Japanese team that had worked on it first, or if we had worked on that one, or someone in-house in at our place had worked on that one first, or a combination of the two, but I know I was the person who put the last touches on it. Um, but yeah, it, it was really neat because I remember uh, distinctly like early on, the first one I was working on was Shy Guy Bazaar. And initially we were told to just like kick these things out as quickly as possible. You know, just get them done, get them done, get them out. Mm. And I was like, mm, I know I can work fast and I can hit this deadline, but I want to do something special with this. Now there's no true lighting in that game it's all baked in and so uh with the levels i realized that you know if you've got a light map on something that darkness is just the absence of light and so if you've got a shadow map on there already to do like all the kind of faked in you know ambient occlusion on the levels that you could just you could make you could fake in a nighttime map by painting on the map itself in photoshop and giving it, you know, colored, like fake colored lighting and this, that, and the other. Uh, so I did that for Shy Guy Bazaar because I thought, wouldn't this be beautiful to do this at night? You know, with all these pale structures, the moonlight, uh, pools of, you know, warm colored light on cool colored sand and just make it this like, you know, feast for the eyes. And it was probably one of my best memories from my career was showing that uh, that level off to the team, um, you know, from Japan. And I was used to it at that point that like, when we showed things to Japan, the best thing you wanted was no comment. Like, you know, basically. Yeah, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Moving on. Cool. Great. No criticisms. High praise. 
Uh, but this one, they opened it for the first time and the whole team went, oh, and I was just over the moon. Like I had never experienced that with any of their teams before. And they just thought it was beautiful. And I was so happy. I was so happy to make them happy. Did they ask you how you did it? They did. Yeah. And I, I told them what I did and you know how we did it. And we ended up bringing certain aspects of that and some of the other maps we did. So like Bowser's Castle has a bit of that in it. Um, I can't remember if Daisy uh, Cruz does or not. But, you know, just the idea of like taking your uh, light map, bringing it into Photoshop and putting uh, finishing touches on it rather than just letting, you know, whatever modeling program you're using spit it out uh, with an AO and light bake, um, you know, just really helped push it that extra distance. Mm. You mentioned you had tight deadlines with some of these levels. Like how much, how much of a deadline would it be with each level? How much time do you <gasps> get to work on it or have to work on it? can't remember um it was i don't remember ever feeling super duper stressed about it so it must not have been that that tight for me um but i've always joked that like my tag skill as an artist is that i'm very quick so um yeah i don't know i can't remember clearly right offhand i'm sorry no that's no problem it is a long time ago so totally yeah. understand but so <laughs> so in terms of you say you can work fast how to how do you work fast and still maintain quality at the same time because usually um, it's a balancing act isn't it it is it is uh, so one of the things i like to do is <clears throat> oftentimes i'll come up with like a lego set what i call a lego set for uh, environments that i'm working on and i will start from the biggest structures and move down to the smaller details. And the way it will work is like, so if I'm working on, you know, like say, like an ancient Egyptian map of some sort, I would make, you know, the, the temple and a pyramid first, because those are gonna be the biggest things. Those are gonna be the biggest things that everybody notices and everything is gonna be kind of, <clears throat> as far as the composition goes, nested around those. And then from below those, I'd probably make some of like the normal buildings along the street and then the trees. And if there's any kind of, uh, you know, like light poles or carts, things of that nature, then you get down to even smaller things like, you know, uh, pots or things for sale at shops or, you know, details of like different plants that grow along the side of the street or, you know, what have you. And so it all comes down to there. And once I've got all these bits, all these things to play with, and I can just propagate them throughout and rotate them and flip them and do different things with them. And all of a sudden you've got this whole level that's built out because <clears throat> of having a philosophy of starting with the largest things that you're not going to have very many of and moving down to smaller things that you are going to have a lot of and giving yourself enough variations of them so that the player doesn't immediately go, oh, look, it's the same plant again, you know. And uh, when you do that, it allows you to iterate extremely fast because you have um, your main hero piece, that big piece I was talking about, that's gonna have a lot of the details and a lot of the look of what all the other pieces are gonna kind of harken back to. And you can show that to your art director, bounce it off of a concept artist, um, work back and forth with people very quickly at the beginning. And then everything can kind of filter down from there. And so that by the time you're at the end where you're making, you know, pots and plants and, you know, fruit vendors and stuff of that nature, <clears throat> it's already settled. You already, a lot of that discovery is done. So you're just making things that kind of fit in that scene. And the composition sort of feeds itself, if that makes sense. Mm. So how do you push the artistic boundaries of hardware? Right, because every every bit of hardware will have limitations in terms of what you can do. Mm -hmm. So, how do you find out exactly where that point is, and then know um, how far you can push it? Talking with engineering, you know, they'll give you a lot of uh, specs and stuff to work from, which kind of gives you a, you know, a set of initial boundaries to work with, and then from there, 
you can figure out different things to do to kind of work around them. So like, for instance, one of my favorite things to do as a trick to save yourself a, <clears throat> a, uh, an extra texture map is if you've got any kind of glowing anything on your model, what you can do is you can, when you're UVing it, you can save parts of the, the UV texture space for uh, black and white additive pass bits. So if you need something to glow, you can just refer back to the same texture you're already calling up for a different uh, shader effect. And so instead of calling up two different uh, textures for two different shaders, you're calling up one texture to do double the work. And then you've got, you just kind of keep a mental tally of all the stuff that you're doing, all the stuff that you're saving, <clears throat> so that when you do have to do something maybe a little bit above and beyond, you've got that wiggle room. Hmm. So do you yeah. personally prefer doing more environmental art or actual uh, concepts of designs of people or animals or creatures? Like what, uh, what stuff do you personally prefer? Well, um, you know, I like all of it in different doses. Um, I think that probably my favorite things to build are machinery is always fun. Um, you know, I do enjoy making environments quite a bit. I love um, making kind of like diesel punk designs in my spare time. So if it's something that looks like it's made out of anywhere from like 1930s to 1950s technology, it's just big clunky analog structures. <clears throat> Those are probably my favorite kind of things to do. And whether that's environment or a vehicle or a character or a weapon, uh, I just love working with that kind of uh, those kinds of materials, um, that kind of look, that stylization of that period. Um, for me, it's I always try and think of, you know, whether it's uh, an environment or an armor or a weapon or a vehicle, like how does this thing exist in its world? How is it used? How is it disused? Um, is someone misusing this? Has someone been correctly using it? Is it brand new off the factory line? And building that into the texture work for it and even into the modeling of it so that the world feels lived in or the tools that you have feel, you know, appropriate to the level of use that the player is experiencing. So if you find a, you know, if you go into like an old looking workshop and there's cobwebs everywhere, you're not picking up this bright red, brand new pipe wrench. You know, you, you're getting this thing that looks like it's definitely been used. You don't have to make it a rusty mess, but you need to make it look like it's not new and it's been used and it's been used correctly even but it needs to look like it fits. Hmm. That's very interesting. How easy is that to do though? Or how difficult is that to do to make it look like it's used? Um, I think it's one of those things that it's very hard to put your finger on. Um, you know, if you've got it in your head that that needs to go into you know, you're in your environment, your space that you're working in, and you've just kind of innately got that in your mind, then it's pretty easy uh, to scale that as far as like, you know, okay, so this entire area is going to be kind of more or less this level of, you know, wear and tear and um, so on and so forth. Um, but I think it's one of the things that like I'll run into uh, playing, you know, playing other games where, like I'll run into this, especially if it's like a, at a post-apocalyptic kind of game and where everything is just all sorts of beaten to heck and everything is rusted beyond repair. And, you know, the structures people are building are made out of like old shopping carts and, you know, trash and stuff. I'm like, well, no one would want to live in trash. <laughs> Even if the bombs dropped, people aren't going to live in trash. You're going to try and make a home that's at least somewhat livable and clean-ish. So you don't need the whole world to feel like someone just took a paintbrush of rust color and do it all over the whole thing. 
you need to make it so that there's places where people live and then places where people have forgotten. And, you know, maybe, um, you know, there needs to be a differentiation between um, in like that post-apocalyptic situation, <clears throat> things that are bombed out from the past and things that people are building in the present. There needs to be a difference between the two. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> that's weird. That's nothing wrong with it. I think that's creative people though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so across the all the games that you worked on at Retro, what was like did you have a specific time where an idea you submitted like ended up in the game? Maybe you submitted oh, it to uh, a designer or it was in a team meeting or whatever it was. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned the uh the Shy Guy Bazaar you know, nighttime. And initially I know my art lead really didn't want me to do it. And he wanted me to just kick it out as quickly as I possibly could. And to just do, you know, just, you know, do exactly what it said on the box. And I was like, I want to make it special. So did, like, did you, <laughs> so did you say, I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm not going to tell you, I'm just going to do it and then tell you afterwards. What is it? What's that saying? Um, Ask I did for forgiveness rather than permission. That's the and so I did, and I even spent like my own time on it, where I stayed after hours and I worked on it myself, because I felt, for whatever reason, passionate about it. I wanted to make something that was, it was cool. And when you know we got to show it off, and they did have such a positive reaction, I knew it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to get ripped out. So, uh, it, you know, my art lead was a little bit miffed about that, uh, <laughs> showed up and it wasn't, but you know what? It was on time and it was done and, uh, you know, the Japanese team loved it. So, oh, well, <laughs> uh, how did, um, I'm not sure if you had anything to do with it, but obviously there's a few Metroid references in some of the levels. I think in both Donkey Kong Country Returns and Tropical Freeze. Yeah. Do you remember how those came about? Yeah. Um, I believe that was largely uh, Sean Horton and Matt Manchester's doing. Um, I think Teague Schultz might have done some of that as well, but I know that Matt loved sneaking those kinds of uh, Easter eggs and, you know, yeah. Um, I think there was one in specifics that I know I helped him on. I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember what it was. But yeah, I'm trying to recall them as well. I think there's there's one with a ship. Mm -hmm. I think there's Crocomire. I think. Yeah, one of the bosses. There's probably yeah, there's, there's, there's a few bones. references. It's the bones. I remember I helped him out with the bones yeah, yeah. in the yep. level, and there's the Crocomire skull. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah, I did help him with that. So, so that was. Did you look at the original art of Crocomire to get an idea, or did you just look at some oh, bones? Yeah. We would look it up online just to make sure we weren't forgetting anything because, you know, a child's memory is kind of imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Do you, yeah. How, do you remember how long it took? Oh, to make that? Not, not terribly long. I mean, if it was something like that where it's made out of one material, <clears throat> it goes pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. But um, did you submit any ideas in terms of levels? Like in, in any mm. of the Donkey Kong games? You're like, hey, we should do a level based on this. Or did that just come through meetings, I suppose, and brainstorming sessions? It was a lot of meetings and it was a lot of brainstorming sessions. Um, a lot of that stuff, if I remember correctly, was left up to design. Uh, there were certain aspects of things that we could definitely request, but it tended to be um, within the boundaries of what design wanted to do with, uh, you know, with the focus of whatever the level was supposed to be about. And we had such a good design team that was very focused on making these very fun levels that rarely did we run into a position where we had to do any kind of pushback. Um, almost always, if there was any kind of pushback, it was because like the ask that was 
being put to us as artists was like in the realm of impossible geometry. Um, can, you, can you give me an like, example? You know, it would just be one of those things where like, you know, you want to have this giant door that opens, but you also want to have, you know, the background behind it be very close to the player path. The door is going to swing into that. So, I mean, you know, you, you want two objects to occupy the same space at the same time and they cannot do that. Right. I see. And so we would run into that occasionally, but it was never a big snafu. It was always just like, oh, okay, well, remove the thing in the background. We want to keep the door. Or I guess the door is not that important. We want to keep the hero piece in the background. So that kind of stuff. But in a meeting, would a designer be like, okay, I want to do this. And from an artistic point of view, would you be like, would you or the team be like, yeah, no, we can't do that? It tended to be more along the lines of, um, you know, we would we would talk about like, okay, this level is going to be, uh, you know, beach theme. What are some you know fun beach stuff to do? Oh, we definitely want to do pirates. So okay, well, what do we what can we do with that? <clears throat> okay, well, we want to do a level that's launching cannonballs at the player. Um, you know, just thinking like just riffing really back and forth, and so it was very collaborative, which was very cool, and um, you know just. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun, and there was never really any kind of uh, any kind of knocking of heads in that regard. Um, but I remember, like you know, we would be able to suggest different things, like sort of like the fruit factory level. You know, me bringing up you know having gone to you know an actual fruit packing plant. You know, mm. I was able to feel like, oh, we need we need how to do some like kind of cartoony choppers and. Uh, things that squeeze the fruit and you know this that and the other just thinking about it as like an assembly line you're going from left to right so let's go from the beginning of this process to the end and kind of trying to keep that in mind so it was never really I think something that was so hard and fast but more of a collaborative sort of thing mm. was the foreground to the background stuff difficult to do only so much in so much as you had to and so this is actually another really good uh lesson as artists that um i picked up from there and i've always carried with me is to not occlude the player the dk always had to be visible you can't lose them hmm. and you know so whenever we were working on stuff in the foreground if it was a section where the player was moving quickly and they couldn't stop like if you're sliding down the side of a, a, you know, a water sluice or something, you could <clears throat> throw things in the foreground that could occlude the player momentarily because they're not going to stop. They're not going to lose their player. There's no threat of an enemy wandering across the screen and running into them and the player dying and being like, wow, that was unfair. Um, but doing the parallax stuff uh, was actually, it wasn't too difficult. It was... Um, it was a lot of like learning how to composite our scenes in a way where we kept an eye on the level of detail that we wanted to show and finding like different key shots where we wanted to have memorable instances of like some kind of hero piece in the background, mm. stuff of that nature. Because some of the stuff in like Tropical Freeze, for example, you have a quite a few levels where you've got all this destructive terrain and it just feels like mm -hmm. something's constantly being thrown at the player right mm -hmm. um and in terms of how you're designing the art because obviously donkey kong still has to be the focus and your eyes can't be all over the place mm -hmm. otherwise you lose track of what you're doing so how do you find the balance of getting that right well, i think it's kind of like you know what I, I had mentioned before which was um you know with the a lot of the color language of the levels and making it so that you know, you always know where where a place you can land if you're the player. <clears throat> so there's a player path and the player is on it. So you know you're always going to be on this one strip. And so even if things are moving around, you're not worried about where your player is because you know it's always going to be located on this player path. And even if things are flying around, your DK is always going to be the same color. Uh, enemies are always going to be the same color. Spikes are always going to be the same color. So the dangerous objects and the uh, beneficial objects always stand out. And 
how we got around the idea of like so much stuff being moved, moving on the screen as artists was the gray boxing that designers would do initially where they would just have uh, these very rudimentary structures that they would build. <clears throat> and so even like the areas with lots of uh, destructible terrain or whatever, um, it would still be like built out of these gray boxes. So we knew exactly what we were going to be building over top of mm. from the get-go. And so we could composite these scenes in a way where, you know, if the player did feel lost, we'd go back in there and we'd color correct things or, you know, knock down uh, the brightness of something so it didn't read as like dangerous or spiky, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Because it's really ingenious how it was done because you've got stuff that's vertical, horizontal, and coming from the background in some of this, some of these levels. And I suppose, yeah, yeah. and knowing when, when it should come from the background, when it should be falling, you know, from the, the top of the level and stuff coming in from the side. I mean, it, I don't know how, I don't know how the designers decide on when, when to do that and when to pull back and yeah i suppose it's a little trial and error oh uh, it, it is initially but like once you get going and you're in the middle of the process of making a game like that you it just becomes second nature because mm. especially like after the first year um that's just what you're doing so you know it's you don't even really necessarily think about it in a really truly uh conscious way you're just kind of doing it mm. <clears throat> Um, final question before I, I wrap up, but, uh, when you moved on from retro, was it jarring for you at all to adapt to a different, uh, culture? Because I've, I've spoken to a couple of the other devs at retro and because Nintendo tend to have a very unique philosophy on, mm -hmm. on certain aspects. And obviously you're in that environment for so long, you probably get used to a certain way of doing things. And then you move to another studio and they might have an entirely different way of doing things. And then you have to try and adapt to that way of, or that culture, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so one of the things uh, I remember that stands out to me very clearly. Um, so when I was working on uh, you know, Project Tonight We Riot with the team Pixel Pushers, uh, <clears throat> I was used to having to do things on the extreme down low because Nintendo or Retro did not want you doing your own personal projects. That was like a fireable offense. Really? And yeah, so not allowed. And, you know, but I love making games. And my wife always jokes with me. She's like, yeah, you work all day on games and you go home. These days I work from home, so I just change project folders. Um, and uh, you make games. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's what I've been doing since I was 13. I love doing this stuff. And to say I can't do it when I go home, mm -mm. but it took me a while to not be paranoid about that because uh, I would absolutely not talk about it when I was working at Retro, if I was doing my own stuff. It was just, and I was working at the next studio I was at, which is where I'm, I'm still at actually, uh, space-time studios where we make mobile games and i remember i was really excited because um we were showing off tonight we riot uh which was then called radical rebels um over at juegos rancheros we got approached by somebody from south by southwest saying they wanted us to uh have a booth there and i was like wow that's really cool and i was talking with a co-worker in the break room about it and then all of a sudden I hear the owner of the company go, you're going to be at South by Southwest. And I was like, Oh no, like I'm doomed. I'm going to have to go and be like, honey, I got fired. But then he, you know, it was the exact opposite. He was very excited for me, uh, gave me a ton of really good advice and even lent me, um, stuff that, that space time had on hand for doing booths and uh you know really helped me focus on what i wanted to do there and it was a very a very big change of experience 
of, you know, not feeling like I had to tiptoe around. Mm. In that regard, at least. Yeah. Well, I suppose that takes off a bit of pressure, right? <sighs> and I like the way I've always looked at it is, you know, why wouldn't you want your workers, you know, when they go home, if they're excited and passionate about working on games? I mean, say I learned something about making art while tinkering on my own stuff. I'm going to take that right back into the office the next day and I'm going to apply it to my day job. And, you know, I'm, it makes me a better artist and they benefit from that. So, mm. yeah, well, hey, I, I, I agree. I totally agree. You know, it I makes mean, perfect sense to me. The thing I've always said is well, I'm hitting my deadlines and, you know, the game's getting done on time. Who cares? Yeah, I'm not competing with you. <laughs> yeah. Although, I will say this. Tonight We Riot did come out on the Switch. And we got it through Lot Check on the first try. Well done. Oh. How, how hard is that to do, by the way? Extremely difficult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we were, you know, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent for you because this is very, like, retro-focused. But, yeah. like... Um, when we got to the point where we were doing um, lot check and the game was done, I was expecting it was going to take three months, like minimum, of you know bouncing it back, there being a bug, us finding it, fixing it, sending it in, over and over and over. Because I had been at Retro and gone through lot check, you know, two ish, three ish times, and it had taken a while, and it wasn't for like a lack of you know, skill, I, the way I look at it was, you know, we were an indie project. And so the quality bar for us was probably a little lower, but, <clears throat> you know, it was also a much simpler game, but still that we got an email back saying that we were all good to go on the first try. Never more surprised. <laughs> and I was like, yes, good, great, grand. Shoot it out. So when you're going through cert certification, I suppose, like, mm -hmm. what do you do while you're waiting to hear back? Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? Wait. You just, you must be doing some work, right? Of some sort. You can't just be sitting there. We're mostly just doing like social media stuff, getting screenshots put together, um, still testing it and, you know, seeing if there's anything that maybe we missed. But I mean, that's one of the things about working in games that I've noticed over the years is that like, if you've worked on a project, especially if it's a project you've worked on for years, you will miss things because you've looked at them every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, you know, wherever you live, you know, in your house or your apartment or wherever, there's parts of it that you could probably, you know, clean up or fix or what have you, but you're used to living around them. And so if there's a, a doorknob that jiggles, you just know that that's the doorknob that jiggles. And unless you fix it, it's always going to be the doorknob that jiggles. And maybe you're going to be like, Oh, I'll fix it tomorrow. And tomorrow takes three years. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I I think it's amazing what you've done in, in your career. I mean, I, I hope you can go back to your old work and well, some of the games that you've worked on and you appreciate them and not hate them. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely love them. I mean, you know, I've got, um, let's see, I've got, you know, my... Uh, oh, game. nice. Got those up there. And then I've got my little... Uh, little you know, showcase of stuff that I've done. And so there's uh, the Mario Kart and DKCR and Tropical Freeze and even Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3 for yeah. the PC, my first official title. That would have been good. <laughs> well, hey, I'll I'll wrap up there. I could speak to you for hours, but I know it's late. Oh, but um, I, I appreciate you taking time out and doing this. Of course. Yeah, man. And, you know, Thank you for rescheduling with me. I really do appreciate it. Oh, no problem. These things happen. That's, that's how it works. How it works. So if anyone wants to keep up to date with any of your work or what you're doing now, is there any, any place they can go? What's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. Um, you can keep up with uh, what Pixel Pushers are doing um, on Twitter at uh, PPU512. So it's just at symbol PPU512. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter uh, at pixel underscore possum. And that's my nickname on there. So. Nice name. 
or you can click out tonightweriot.com and check out you know the game that me and my team made so mm. well thank you again i hope you maintain this energy it's great that you can still maintain it after all the all these years and you're still passionate about what you're doing Gosh, you know what i that's what i always say to folks is i'm really lucky and i know that i'm lucky because mm. i get to do what i wanted to do when i was 13 mm. and so few people get to say that and so even when things are hard uh you know working on games at the end of the day you know i'm making games that's pretty cool yeah and thank thanks so much for tropical freeze i will go on record and say it's probably the best 2d platformer i've ever played personally i just i feel there's more more creative genius in one world than a lot of games an entire game just in one world there's just so many unique and creative things in that game i just i love it i love it to death really beautiful and fun game to work on Mm. so i'm really i'm really pleased to have been a part of it and work with the wonderful people on that project Mm. that's a brilliant place to wrap up so thanks again ted i very much appreciate it you're very welcome and uh yeah i look forward to seeing the other interviews with other folks as well yeah no pressure for me (laughs) (laughs) none at all yeah cool all right well that is the show everyone make sure you share like and subscribe and until next time stay safe